0: I think that is very, very interesting to
1: hear of these specific two instances where you have a, let's standardize the text, let's make sure no one else, there's no nothing else coming in. And I guess more inquisitively, I, I got to know, wh- why on earth, why in, in Cairo did they choose this text over any of the others? Yeah,
2: so the, the, the reason seems to be, of course, at that time, the major... Muslim Empire was the uh, the Ottoman Empire, and uh, they particularly liked the Hus version. Uh, that was the one which was being used by uh, many government officials and scholars and whatever. And Egypt, of course, had been part of that, and so they had a kind of a uh, an affection for it. And they decided that that's the one that they would stick with. It was the one which was mo- most commonly available. Um, so they thought we'll, we'll we'll go with that one.
1: I guess a, a nice popularity contest uh, there yes. <laughs> of transmission. That's really interesting. And so I, I guess you've probably been engaging somewhat, not only with, I know you've debated, uh, I believe it's Adnan Rashid. Um, mm-hmm. You've debated him publicly. You've probably looked at some material from Dr. Sheikh Yasser Tkadi, uh, Dr. But When it comes to how they deal with this versions Maybe you can use those three as somewhat of a, a catalyst of understanding for us to say, okay, so how are they answering this? And what do they do with these 27 versions? One is, is right. Yeah.
2: Um, I, I made up a little, uh, a little cartoon about this, um, and I called it uh, Quran Chef. Um, can you see that on your screen?
1: yes we can (laughs) yeah
2: yeah so um the the problem was that uh they said well there's only one true quran um but in fact we've got these 27 versions around by the way these are available you can buy these i lived in jordan for a couple of years there's a bookshop there you could just go down and buy these um you can order them online um so uh, there's a group called easy quran um uh in lebanon and the one in jordan is called where did i get that from uh dar el Fikr. um you can buy these versions there so it's it's not as though you know they're hidden away in a library they're public available you can uh, um you know you could um send uh go online, find the site, and you'll have it within two weeks. Um, and that's where I got uh, a lot of mine from, others I got from travelling around. But then the question was, so which version are we going to have? So I called it, you know, the the Quran chef with Dr. Yasir Qadhi, Shabir Ali and uh, uh, Adnan Rashid. And... Um, um, Shabir Ali says, well, I'm I'm gonna stick with the Huffs. That was the one, that was the, the good one, that's acceptable. It's no different in terms of the content from the other ones. We see some variations and uh that, that's okay. We'll we'll do that. Um uh Yazir Qadi and this incredible interview that he gave, I don't know if people have seen that, I've got a, a short clip of it here, I don't know if it's worth, you might not be able to see it if I play it, but he says, well, um, questioned by uh, Muhammad Hijab, well, which one is the is the real one? And he said, well, it's not as simple as just choosing one. And he said, we'll have to uh, go for a mixture, we'll take bits from one and bits from the other, it will be the real Quran, but in effect, it's like nothing that exists on earth at the moment. It's like it would be his version uh, his version of that um he's gonna pull bits there and i and i call his uh his one the um the fruit salad quran um <laughs> he's, he's taken a bit out of uh hafs and a bit out of the wash and a bit out of the duri and the sushi and whatever and he's put them together um it's got all the bits from from those but it's not quite the same as what we have at the moment um uh Adnan rashid he was very upset uh with Yasser Qadim. he said he should never have gone on he should never have talked about this thing it's not something that's that needs, that can be talked about except by scholars um and he's and they said so what what version would you go for and he said well I'm going back to the ba- the basics and so this was the one and I mentioned before the the text which has got no dots in it this would be one of the early manuscripts um but no arab, can read this um if you if you ask them to read this they'll say well i don't know if that is a fa or a ka or a ba or a ya or a ta um, you know that word could be something if they've memorized the text and you get them started often they'll be able to read it from the version that they've memorized So if they've memorized the hus version they'll recite the Hus version if they've memorized the wash version they'll recite the wash version I was in Sudan a couple of years ago and there the um, Aduri version is famous and people would recite that. So you would have the same problem as they had back in Armenia, you know, in 650 AD, where the people would be reading the same text but reciting something differently. Um, so I uh, said so this was Adnan Rashid's uh, winning recipe. He just took the the peels and the cores and um, <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, gone down to the very basics, the basics one. Um, so this is the way that these three uh, respond to it. So Adnan Rashid says, you know, well, you can pick, you know, I'll go for the husband, really, you could pick any of them because it's all the word of God and it hasn't been, um, there's no uh, doctrinal differences between them. yasser Qadi said, we'll take bits from here and there, but how he would choose that, he's gone offline now, he doesn't uh, do social media anymore because of that. And then um, Adnan Rashid pulling them back to the um, uh, just to the the text without dots. So those be the way those three deal with it.
1: Well, you know it is it is so good to see that. And you know when I was coming out of atheism, I remember uh, before I had converted and before I came to Christ, I remember watching you know the top guys, and I always would appeal to authority. And and so for me, I was an atheist, so I would appeal to you know, the Dawkins and so forth. And then I actually watched a video called Expelled No Intelligence. Wow, wait a second. All, my, all the guys I would appeal to don't have an answer. So I think it should be very telling to a Muslim neighbor that the top apologists, the top scholars on this don't have an answer for the true transmission that lines up with what the Quran teaches concerning its nature and concerning what you've been taught all these years. So it's really, really important And I I think this is something really good to get into because, guys, when the top apologists are coming up with this, and as you see, I know we make a light of it because the answers that they're giving just don't add up to truth. And in fact, that's somewhat what Dr. Sheikh Yasser Khadi was saying in that interview, that there's a certain red line that you go to with reverence for the Quran where you stop asking questions, but in the West— they will use your own material against you to show how faulty the narrative is that you've been given. And I guess this would be a great time to transition a little bit because a lot of this information comes right out of the hadith. and I you know what I, I believe you wrote your doctrinal dissertation is that is that correct? That's On right, that, yeah. maybe maybe our listeners don't even know what the hadith is. You, maybe you, you haven't heard of it maybe. You know, when we talked about it on the show, you were wondering what on earth we're talking about. So maybe if we can have an expert on the Hadith specifically uh, talk about what is the Hadith, and I mean, really, what do you find in there? Mm,
2: yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe I'll uh, just pull out a um oh, place. Oh, I like using pictures. Um Let's see, where am I? All right. Um. Now, can you see? Share this. this way. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the the hadith came out of the the um problem that when Muhammad uh died, people became more and more interested in. Um, you know, in his life, and particularly as Islam began to expand. And we can see here that the um, uh, uh, Islam pushed out very quickly from the Arabian Peninsula, and it began invading countries. And so people wanted to know the stories of Muhammad. What was he like? What did he say? But when you get to a place like, say, Kabul or um, over to Spain, People uh, and again, this was maybe a hundred years later. Um, people had no idea about Muhammad, and so they started collecting stories about Muhammad and uh, putting them into um, uh, in, uh, in, into texts that they could trans, uh, send around. So here's some of the earliest. Um, collections. So notice the, the important one is this uh, one in the center there, I call it years after Muhammad's death. N- none of them were collected within the lifetime of Muhammad. So these weren't eyewitnesses. These were stories that were put together a century or a century and a half after Muhammad died. Um, and so th- they uh, were then trans- um, put into books and these stories started to go around. Um, some of them were um, had official um, uh, support. For example, this one here by um, a Shabab, Ibn Shabab al-Zuhri was requested by the caliph. Um, uh, this was a different umma, not the first umma, umma the second, um, a, a hundred years or so after Muhammad died. Um, and the early um, hadith had no... Um, so when a person recited a hadith, they would say, well, um, I heard this from, and down there, humaydi who heard it from Sufyan, who heard it from Yahya, who heard it from Muhammad, who heard it from Al-Qama, who heard it from Umar, who heard it from Muhammad. Again, there were no written records. So these were all by oral transmission. And um, the early hadith, you just uh, someone would just say, well, I heard Muhammad once said such and such. Um, and you didn't really know how it, how it uh, came into being. And so a lot of people would just make up hadiths. Um, They would say, um, oh, yeah, um, I want to do something. And I heard one time Muhammad did the same thing. Um, And there was this story of one man, uh, Abdul Karim Abu al Uja, who confessed to fabricating 4,000 hadiths. He just was making up stories about Muhammad said. They caught him out and he was um, executed uh, because of that. And so they came to... About that one they came to what we now call the golden age of hadiths um and this was the period after um um uh, it's about um 200 years after muhammad died so in that first 100 years there were no hadith collections nobody had any written records of what muhammad did in the second 100 years there were only 30 collections But none of these had their trains, what they call the ISNAD or the train of transmission, which tells you who they got it from. And it was in the third 100 years from 830 to 930 AD, we get the 50 uh, Hadith collections. And this is called the Golden Age. And these guys were a little bit more um, careful about their sources. And so they said, any time we hear a story about Muhammad, we need to know how it came to us, how it was transmitted to us. Again, they couldn't go back and look in a book. It had to be verbal transmission. I say the equivalent is like in Australia, it was about um, 200 years ago we had white settlement here. Uh, Captain Cook uh, came and Captain Phillip came later on to establish a a first colony from Britain. Um, And I said, imagine if I told you to go and find out the stories of that, but you're not allowed to use any written records. You have to go and ask somebody somebody who knew somebody, who knew somebody, who knew somebody, who knew somebody. who knew Captain Cook? Um, that's basically what happened with these hadith, um, and so you get the the collections over 50 collections. They had higher standards. It was um, if there was a written record, they wouldn't accept it. They said it had to be verbal, and then they classified some hadith as uh, authentic or sahih, um, good, as Hasan, weak as Laif, or fabricated mazurah. And you can see there, Al Bukhari. He had six hundred thousand different stories about Muhammad, and he accepted a half of one percent of them as authentic. Um, and there's multiple copies of some of them to make it up to seven thousand in his collection. He's seen as the uh, the gold standard of um, uh, of the Hadith. The um, uh, the, the, the kind of the Rolls Royce standard. And these would be the, the, six main co- the six main collections that are accepted now. So there's al-Bukhari up the top, then Muslim, a little bit below him. And then these four other ones, are Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah uh, uh, and Naseh and Abu Dawood. I did my doctorate on al-Bukhari. So uh, going through and doing an analysis of it and um, uh, just checking up uh, what the contents were and particularly how we can use that in ways for sharing the gospel. So that's the Hadith at the moment. But there's over 100 different copies of the, uh, or different versions, uh, different collections of the Hadith. Um, but these would be the six ones that people would typically refer to as acceptable.
1: Wow, you know, I, I think that's great because one of the things, I, I, I love sharing on the streets and I would have all these different Hadiths. And then eventually I started to realize the one that no matter what, if I brought it up, it was Sahih al-Bukhari. When I would bring that one up specifically, they they wouldn't say oh I don't I don't trust that one I don't trust that one that was just handwritten I think as somebody once said to me uh, about using some so I said okay that that's interesting so I've been kind of using that one and it's interesting I guess maybe I could transition um, in in your in my questioning for you on this because I love street evangelism that is my passion I met my got to know my wife that way and then asked her to marry me and in fact. Most of the people that I was sharing with when I was a newer convert out on the street sharing the gospel were Muslims down in Santa Monica. And that's they had a booth and everything, and I would talk with them. And they were the ones that would bring a lot of the challenges where a lot of other people didn't really want to talk to me. And so I, I kind of got, I get I guess, my feet wet in evangelism with sharing the gospel with Muslims. And so you are not only a, a scholar, which you are a scholar indeed, but you were a missionary for over 20 years. I believe you're an evangelist as well. So I I guess not only using Sahih al-Bukhari or or the Quran or, you know, obviously the word of God, the Deutimus power of the gospel, How give us some ways that you share the gospel with Muslims, especially on the streets specifically. Mm-hmm. yeah so
2: my first approach so yeah we we have a street outreach every saturday where a group of us go out and um share the gospel we've set up a uh, uh, a couple of tables i'll see if i can just pull up a um a picture to show you what we're doing um stop sharing there Uh, let me do that.
0: Okay. All right.
2: Um, is it gone? Um, yeah, so, uh, each week we're out there, um, sharing the gospel with, uh, Um, you can see, we've got a table out there um, and down the bottom there it says Jesus loves Muslims. So do we. And then at the top, we are Christians sharing Jesus and engaging with Islam. And uh, on the table, you can see a whole lot of different uh, pamphlets that we have. So I wrote these for the team. So raising, uh, answering the different questions that people um, raise. Uh, you know, why do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Uh, also responding to issues about Islam. So they'll say, well, Muhammad was the perfect man. And they've got there's an Islamic table about uh, five metres away to uh, on the right hand side of this one uh, on the other side of the intersection, maybe 20 metres away. And they have, you know, Muhammad, the perfect man and the Quran. Um, so we've written Uh, brochures to them. They're all available on my website, by the way, berniepower.com. You can go on there and uh, download those. Um, And uh, when Muslims come and talk to us, my first approach is to find out, well, what kind of Muslim is this? You know, what, what are the issues that they're facing? Sometimes we'll get Iranians, you know, who will say, oh, yeah, well, look, I'm a Muslim, but I don't actually believe a lot of that stuff. And then you go down one path and others will take uh, you know, a, a very strong stance yet. Yeah, Muhammad is the the best person who's ever lived. The Quran is the only perfect book. Um, and so I'll then respond to their their particular issues. Um, but usually when I'm talking with them, I'll I'll want to try and get to a place where I can uh, talk, and I'll I'll talk about the Trinity early on. Uh, because that's a key point of difference between what they believe and what we believe. And so, you know, you believe in a simple understanding of the nature of Allah, um, that is um, uh, a, a, an indivisible unity. And I say, but we believe in a complex understanding of God, that God is three in one, and then go on to talk about um, Jesus from from that kind of basis. So it depends a little bit on the person and where they're at and uh, and how we would go in into that um if they're um, committed to the Quran, then I'll use the Quran as the starting point um, to talk about Jesus and then move to the Bible as the the ultimate point and um, get to sharing the gospel with them. So those would be some of the things that I would do.
1: Yeah, I think that's so wonderful. And one of the great things that, and one of the reasons I wanted to have Dr. Bernie power on specifically is because it's great to, to be a scholar and be able to, teach so many students who hopefully will go out and share, but then you getting out and doing the dirty work yourself, right? And, and I think that's so important, brother, because I, I think more people need to be that way, that we say, hey, you know, we do love them. And, you know, we interviewed Dr. Gordon Nickel as, yes, as well. Yes,
2: yes, and
1: he had the same heart, you know. And one of the things that I find uh, to be very interesting is those like yourself, like the Gordon Nichols of the world as well, It it seems as though those who uh, their expertise is sharing specifically to Muslims, it it just seems like there is such a love for them that they want them so badly to know the gospel. And, And is that the case for you as well?
2: Yeah. And, you know, when people say, well, how should we approach Muslims? I'd say you need to approach each person as an individual. This is somebody who's made in the image of God, somebody who is loved by God. Uh, they've got a, a, a personal story, a personal history. There's pains, uh, hurts in their lives. And so we need to tap into those and to show them how Jesus is the one who can can go in and answer all of those needs. and um, And of course, their ultimate need of salvation. Um, yeah, and in fact, I'm giving a talk tonight uh, here talking about um, um, the, the future of Islam, where it's going to go. And I'll, I'll share with telling stories of contacts that I've had with Muslims. And I'll actually tell them I, I had an operation two weeks ago. I, my face, I've got a little bit of a scar on there, um, just a little thing there that was done by a, by a Muslim surgeon. So um, they said to me, you need to choose a surgeon. And so I chose a guy um, who's a Muslim fellow. Um, you know, we buy our, our meat from a uh, a Muslim butcher whose name's Jihad. We live in a, a kind of a, a strongly Muslim a- area part of Melbourne. Um, so we have contact with Muslims. And I think it's important that we, you know, deal with them in loving ways. So, um, yeah, that, that would be – I think that's the heart of God, really, that gives us that uh, um, privilege and opportunity and love to be able to share with them. I,
1: I absolutely love that, Dr. Power, because – I, I think that should be our hearts, like, it, like you said. And, you know, one of the things uh, I find interesting is I, I, I've read that also you deal with kind of a storytelling approach when it comes to sharing the gospel with Muslims. Maybe give us a little insight on, on why you use that kind of approach.
2: Mm, yeah, okay. So when we were working overseas, we lived in countries, uh, for example, Oman and Yemen, where the level of literacy was really quite low. And it was no good giving a person a, um, a, a New Testament or a Bible in Arabic because they couldn't read it. Um, and also, most of them had never been to school. Um, so in um, my generation, uh, in, in a lot of these countries, the guys had never been to school. They'd grown up uh, working on the land or Maybe working in the city, Um, there weren't any schools, and so they never went. They never learned how to read. So that affects the ways that people think about things. So often, uh, they don't think in terms of um, concepts or abstract ideas, um, but they're very much more concrete in their thinking. And so, I developed a whole series of stories that explain different aspects of the um, of the gospel with them. Uh, Maybe I'll I'll tell you one that. yeah, we've got a few minutes um, that I would use when people would say, well, look, you know, Islam and Christianity are basically the same. And I said, well, let me tell you the story of a man named Ahmed. One day he's walking out in the desert. It's not it was actually nighttime walking in the desert um, because there's a lot of desert in, in that part of the world. And um, he fell down a big hole. There was a sinkhole and he fell into it. And the more he tried to get out, the worse his situation got. And he soon realized he would never escape by himself. He would need help. So he calls out, help, somebody up there, please help me. And soon a face appears at the top. And the face looks down and says, Ahmed, you're in big trouble. I would love to come down and help you, but I'm alone. I can't come down. But what I'll do is I'll send you down a book and you can read this book and you can try and work out how to save yourself. So he drops a book down to Ahmed. At the same time, there's another man walking in the desert. His name's Ma'bruk. And he also falls down a hole, another hole, a lot of holes in this desert. And same thing happens. The more he tries to escape, the worse his situation gets. And so he says, I'm going to need some outside help. So he calls, help, somebody up there, please help me. And soon three faces appear at the top. And they look down and they say, well, um, Mabruk, we would love to do whatever we can to help you. Um, What we need is someone who can go down into the hole. And of the, there were three, and one of them was very strong, and he could hold anything. Second one was very brave. He would go anywhere. And the third one was very gentle. He would help anyone. And so the, the brave one says, well, I'm willing to go down to the hole if someone will hold the rope. And the gentle one, sorry, the strong one and the gentle one said, well, we will hold the rope. And they lower him down into the hole, and he gets down there, and he takes the sand off around from Mabruk and ties the rope around his waist. And then they begin to pull him out of the hole. And he gets nearly to the top when his foot hits the side of the sand and all the sand collapses on top of the brave one and buries him and he dies. Well, the strong one and the gentle one said, even though our companion is dead, we will not abandon him to the grave. So they dig and they dig and they dig. For three days they dig and eventually they get down to him and he's dead. And the gentle one says, but I can breathe breathe into him and by the power of God he'll come back to life again. And he does. He leans over and... (gasps) And praise God, the brave one who was dead comes back to life again, and there's great rejoicing, uh, not only because the brave ones come back to life, but also because Ma'bruk, who had been lost, was saved. And so I'd say to my Muslim friends, so who would you prefer to be in that story, Ahmed, who was still in the hole reading the book trying to save himself, or Ma'bruk, who had been saved by the three who came to his rescue, and the brave one who came and died uh, in in the process of rescuing him. And when I tell this story, I remember one time I told it to a group in Yemen, they go, oh, you're very clever because we know what you believe. I said, yeah, we believe in a God who is three in one. God, the Father, who is God with us. God, the Son, who is God. uh, Sorry, God, the Father, who is God for us. God, the Son, who is God with us, who comes down to be part of us. And God, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. And I said, that's the difference between the two. It's really about what's going to happen to you and how you're going to be saved so that was a story so I put in that you know the the concept of the trinity the differentiation between Islam and Christianity uh, the idea of the death um, uh, and the resurrection um, and salvation are, are all in that story
1: I absolutely love that and I love your approach as well using stories you know there was a carpenter that did that as well back in the day, you know, the parables and so forth. Uh, he was my but, inspiration. <laughs> that's, good. that's a good inspiration to have. So, guys, hopefully if this does anything, I, I hope that this show would give you the impetus, that would give you just a burning passion to want to share the gospel with our Muslim neighbors. God bless you guys. And, and thank you so much, Dr. Power.
2: Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for
0: having me.